Hey everybody, I'm Michael Light, and this is my podcast, The Bibleonian. I'm a layman who is absolutely crazy about the Hebrew Bible and about Second Temple Jewish theology. And on this podcast, I'm exploring all of the Hebrew Bible and how it is all completed in the life, death, and resurrection of my Messiah, Jesus. And I also read and write about theology and about other religions that I'm studying. And you can see my raw thoughts on these topics and more by following me on all of my socials. And you can find my more polished works on my website with a link in my show notes. With that said, let's move right into this episode for the week. In this second installment to what I'm now calling the season, um, the uncomfortable gospel, I'd like to first expound on what something means to be biblical. This, therefore, isn't really a episode just for this series, but it's crucial, it's foundational that we understand what biblical means. Because if we just go on, presuming that we are all thinking about biblical meaning the same thing, then we've made our first mistake. Every single major idea in anything that's going to be debated must be fully understood and agreed upon by both sides. And I think that the way that I'm going to define what the word biblical means, I think that after listening to this, most every Christian will agree on most everything. But I think that before listening to this, a lot of us will have presuppositions that will disagree with this, but that we were unaware of. With all that said and done, I'd like to jump right into the episode. Okay, so what does the word biblical even mean? This is what we're finding out in this episode. So the word biblical, when most people think about what that word means, they think it just means from the Bible. Okay, yes, that's true. But if that's all that you think the term biblical means, then you have a lot left out of your definition. If that's our definition, then many, many heresies could be biblical. Progressive Christianity could be biblical. For crying out loud, Islam could be biblical. In fact, Judaism is biblical according to most people's very limited and broad definition of biblical. Because according to that definition, as long as there's any case for something to be in the Bible, you can believe it. So if you just take verses from the Bible that say that Jesus was a man, okay, you can say Jesus is just a man and that's biblical. If you take just the Old Testament, then you can say Judaism is biblical. Well, if you say that Judaism actually does align with the Old Testament, which is a whole different topic. But supposing that it does, then Judaism is biblical. And if you rip out a ton of verses and um, allow for many other presuppositions to be made, you can argue that Islam is biblical and Gnosticism and adoptionism and all these different things you can argue are biblical. Because as long as you can find some verse, some phrase, some sentence that supports that, then it's true. 
And that's exactly the problem with this understanding of what the term biblical means. If there's a problem with your definition of biblical, that means it needs to be reshaped, it needs to be reformed. You need to take it, either throw it away and find a completely different one, or you need to alter it. Now, I wouldn't say that you need to completely throw away your understanding of what biblical means, but there definitely needs to be some nuance. There definitely needs to be some clarification specifications. You really need to think about what this word means. For Christianity and Christianity alone to be biblical, we have to come up with a much more specific and clearly set out understanding of what the term biblical means. Even for any other paper or research or whatever somebody is doing, if somebody cites from a source that does not instantaneously make that source in support of whatever paper or research or whatever that person is doing. So let me try and give an example for this. If I'm going to be writing a um, paper and I'm going to write my paper about um, C.S. Lewis's view on heaven, hell, earth, and purgatory, then I can't just go to his book called The Problem of Pain and The Great Divorce and just say, well, C.S. Lewis believes that heaven and earth are going to be reunited and he believes people shouldn't go to hell and just leave it at that. There's so much more that needs to be added there. C.S. Lewis says that if there's any Christian doctrine that Christians should want to not be true, it should be that people go to hell. Well, if I just quote that and leave that there, then, okay, so C.S. Lewis is a universalist. Well, but if you continue to read, you'll see his explanation of why the doctrine of hell is still a just doctrine, a good doctrine, and it's a biblical orthodox doctrine that needs to be held by Christians. And on top of that, you'll also find that he believes in purgatory. That needs to be added. There's so much more that needs to be added. And when you don't add that in, and you claim that that's C.S. Lewis's view, that's not his view. It's a part of his view that really doesn't tell you anything about who he is, other than he has the mind of a kindergartner. In fact, it does leave out major parts of his view, like his view that some people do go to hell and that universalism is wrong. In the same way, if we're gonna go and we're gonna look at the Bible, or if we're going to speak on any subject that's from the Bible, we can't just say something and then find a bunch of Bible verses that back it up and then say, okay, therefore it's biblical. Instead, what we have to do is go to the Bible, read through the Bible, continuously be reading through the Bible and seeing what it has to say and letting that transform how we consider what different things are. So based on the first episode in this series, allow me to provide an example. When Ray Comfort refers to heaven, he refers to it as if it's a physical place. And while yes, there is definitely times in which the Bible is referring to heaven as a physical place. Paul goes to heaven, or we're pretty sure it's Paul. Jesus ascends into the heaven. 
There are very many places. Genesis 2 or 1, 7 talks about God making the heaven. However, heaven is also a non-physical place, but rather a way to talk about God's presence on earth. Mark 1.15, Jesus goes preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. In fact, that's the number one way that the Gospels like to summarize his messages that he likes to go around and preach in different villages. So, if Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of God is coming soon, and other passages are talking about heaven as if it's some physical place that's over the earth, then Jesus is literally claiming that heaven is going to be crashing down on earth, earth is going to be coming up and slamming into the literal physical dome above the earth. Like, that that does not make sense within Orthodox Christianity, that doesn't make sense within heretical uh, circles, that doesn't, that simply does not make sense. And it doesn't make sense because it's not true, and because it's not biblical. So, when we come and we look for what the word heaven means, we can't just look at all the places where it talks about a physical place post-resurrection. We have to look at the places also where it talks about it as a place that is representing God's presence. We have to look at the places where it talks about how um, Jesus is bringing about resurrection life. We have to look at it as the full story of the Bible presents it. Now, heaven is a directly applicable instance of what I'm trying to convey here, but look at another um, idea, for example. Now, I'm not trying to get into all of these doctrines super deeply, like a physical heaven and a flat earth. That's for a completely different series that I plan on doing later. However, um, Take another doctrine, for example, just for the example of looking at what's biblical. Many, many, many Arminians could go to the Bible, classical Arminians, they could go to the Bible and they could bring up uh, verses, John 3.16, uh, other types of verses that say where Jesus is telling people that they need to choose to follow him and say, look, it's so clear. It's obviously Arminianism. The, the Bible, like Arminianism is obviously biblical. Okay, but then you could go and you could read other passages where it says that God chose people from the foundation of the earth. And now all of a sudden you have to make both of those passages make sense. You can't have the Calvinist showing all the verses where it shows uh, that God chose people before the foundation of the earth and the Armenian speaking over him about how we have to choose God like, and say that they're both biblical. They can't both be biblical. They're both exclusivist beliefs, but they both have Bible verses that are easier to interpret within them. In the same way that a physical heaven and a heaven as a representation of God's presence both have biblical precedents. They both are biblical, different types of heavens, but to say that only one is true, only one is real, or to only refer to one and be oblivious of the other when the other is still a major part of the Bible, I would argue that the metaphorical heaven is even more important to the Bible than the physical heaven. You, you have to take that into consideration. And to drop it and to leave it out is to be disingenuous to the text. 
It's to be disingenuous to the Bible and to Orthodox Christianity. It's a slap in the face of the 2,000 years of history that people have had of long, very scholarly debates about um, all different doctrines from justification, salvation, uh, heresy, orthodoxy, Catholicism, all these different things. It's a slap in the face to take all the Bible verses that make your view look good, that are easiest to interpret within your faith tradition, and then completely discard and put aside the other Bible verses. If anything, when we are going to come to a view about what something is according to the Bible, we should first go to the texts that are hardest for us to interpret according to our tradition. That's the fairest, most just, most intellectually honest way to approach the Bible. And we also have to remember that the Bible is something that we as Christians should be continually reading. It's something that we're continually studying. All Christians know that. It's presumed by all faithful followers of Jesus. But why is that presumed? Well, it's presumed because if we need to read this text, it's because we don't have a full enough understanding of it. We don't. And after thousands and thousands of years of research, we're still getting more and more information about it, so much that we could fill thousands upon millions of bookshelves with all the books that could be written about the new stuff that we're learning. Not just what the actual text has, but the historical and literary context behind it. And so to say that we have a completely in full, not wrong understanding of every term to its completion would be wrong. Now, I don't think Ray Comfort or any of these people who share the gospel would claim to have such a view. That would be completely obnoxious and oblivious, hardly even Christian. But the very fact that we need to be reading the Bible proves that we need to be learning. A major part of reading the Bible is allowing it to convict us. If it's convicting us, that means that in our lives that we weren't aware about beforehand that were wrong. Which means that we also need to be learning new things about what right and wrong really is. Which means we don't have a full understanding. And we need to come back to it and continue to read and reread so that we can understand and re-understand what biblical terms really are according to the entirety of the Bible. Or allow someone to consider the story of Jesus. When Jesus appears onto the scene, a lot of people, especially the learned religious leaders are extremely offended at his teachings and what he has to say. But if you look at the reasons why they're offended, it's because they already have a category for God that they're not allowing to be shaped by the scriptures and by reasonable arguments. So that when somebody comes onto the scene who truly is God and has reasonable arguments, more than reasonable arguments, they cannot transform their understanding of God to fit what God has to say about himself. They have to fit whatever they believe into the categories that they've already made and they're not willing to transform it to allow God to tell them who he really is. And a lot of us today are like, oh my gosh, that's so pharisaical. Like I, I just can't stand the Pharisees. Like I just can't stand them. 
but then they go around and they yell and they scream and they talk about how you can't have this understanding of God. You can't have this understanding of Jesus. But they're biblical understandings. They're orthodox understandings. But they won't allow themselves to go and read the Bible and let the Bible apply itself to their traditions and transform how they see Jesus. No one would have been Christian if everybody thought that they fully understood God. The only way that people accepted Jesus, the only way that Jews and Gentiles alike accepted Jesus and accepted the fact that they had to lay down the law and understand that Jesus had completed it was because they had to understand that their religious tradition and what had been passed down to them and taught by their men was a flawed understanding, was an incomplete, unsatisfactory answer to a question that was unimportant that was ignoring a more important question with a big, bigger, more complex answer that they didn't have. And so they had to lay down their categories and they had to allow the categories that they already had that were wrong or were incomplete to be completed, to be fulfilled, to be transformed by Jesus, by who he was and by what he did. I've heard it said that the living, active, incarnate word functions in the same way as the readable word. In other words, Jesus, who is um, said to be the word, according to our English translations, our understanding of who he is in his nature can generally be applied to the nature of the Bible and what it is. So if Jesus completely transformed the idea and the category of who God was for Jews, the faithful followers before him, then that means that the Bible and Jesus and what Jesus did according to the Bible needs to transform how we think about God. But I think a lot of us don't even consider the fact that we need to allow our categories to either be broken or to be transformed to what Jesus has to say. Which brings me to my next point, which is that Jesus was breaking categories that the Jews who were religiously studying the Old Testament had for God. Which means that whatever we are to believe about God has to also be majorly influenced by the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. There's this doctrine, um, progressive revelation as it's called, that many people believe in. It's Orthodox Christian faith. It's not even debated among Jews or Christians, at least to my understanding. And yet so few people think about the implications that it has. Progressive revelation means that any concept that is in the Bible that is biblical, that's supported by the entirety of the Bible, is completely and totally um, revealed in the New Testament. Well, of course, Jews don't believe that, but they believe that every concept is progressively understood as we go throughout uh, the Bible. So we get the first small understanding of what something is from the first pages of the Bible. That right there, that very idea is something that should be totally and completely transformative to many Christians. When any Christian is reading the Bible, they should always be thinking about the first three pages of the Bible 
and thinking about how that category or whatever is happening is a completion or a bigger picture that's to be completed in Jesus in the New Testament when everything is brought to a total completion and a revelation. There are three major things that people need to bring into um, mind. I'm sorry. Three, three big things they need to bring to mind. Number one, where does this idea start? I guarantee you it starts on the very first page of the Bible. That's for absolutely every idea. If you don't know how it starts on the first idea, the first page of the Bible, then research it. There are many, many, many great sources on all sorts of different topics. And every single topic, even with a, an extremely intellectual understanding, intellectually honest and scholarly mind, everything is related to the very first page of the Bible. Every concept ever. Not only that, but it's completed in the very last pages of the Bible, in Revelation. And it's also fully revealed to us in Jesus and his life ministry and the total uh, climax of that, which is his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. In other words, if we're going to look at what biblical even means, most of us we like to think that we can just skip the first three quarters of the Bible because it's all completed by Jesus. Yes, Jesus did complete the law. But that also means that the law was always pointing to him. It was always going to be completed by him. And so if we want to understand what he even completed, we have to take a look at it. We have to go back and we have to read it. As all the biblical authors were thinking about the first three pages of the Bible, all people should be thinking about the first three pages of the Bible whenever they're reading anything and how that is the beginning of it. Then they also need to be thinking about how whatever verse they're reading points towards Jesus. They also need to be thinking about how it points towards his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. Which, by the way, is not separate from his life ministry, but is actually the fulfillment of it. If you look at how people have talked about Jesus, especially the apostles, when they talked about him, uh, scholars and uh, church fathers, I'm sorry, uh, but the, especially the apostles, when you look at how all they talked about Jesus and what he did, they talk about his life ministry first, most of the time. Sometimes they can, they can skip over that because they realize that his life ministry was not separate from his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, but was actually leading up to his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension because his death, burial, and resurrection was the climax of it all. Which means that whatever conception Christians have of Jesus' life ministry, it cannot be, separate, it cannot be separated from his death, his resurrection, his ascension. It must be understood. You have to understand Jesus's life ministry as well, how that's pointing to his death, burial, and resurrection. His death, burial, and resurrection are the climax of the entirety of the story of the Bible. But then there's also the falling action that you have to look at. That's important. But most important, well, most important next to the climax is the resolution, the revelation, the apocalypse. You have to look at how it's all completed in that as well.
It's completed in both. And that's, that, that has to be understood by everyone. Now, I just said a lot of things that are so much easier said than done. So I wanted to give a couple quick examples of what I'm talking about and how they are completed in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. One example, Jesus is walking upon the sea, not the water. If you look at the original Greek and as almost all translations, I'm pretty sure all, almost all translations say, Jesus never walked on the waters. He walked on the sea. Peter walks on the waters when he sees Jesus, who seems to appear to him to be a ghost or a spirit at first. And he calls out to him and Jesus allows Peter to walk on the water, but Jesus is walking on the seas. And as you read this, it's continually switching to talking to referring to them as the, the waters when it refers to Peter. And it continually switches to referring to the seas when talking about Jesus. And so this should make you ask a question, why is the author doing this? This is obviously intentional. You don't just, nobody just switches up like this in conversation when talking about uh, somebody doing something on the sea or on the waters. So why are they doing this? So first three pages of the Bible, waters, where are the waters? Don't just think about where they are, but think about their significance. Well, if you read the first, the second, the, the second part, the second verse on the first page of the Bible, it says that the spirit of God hovered over the waters or in the Septuagint translation, the sea. In other words, it's referring to the, the chaotic forces of death and destruction when it says that Jesus walks on the sea. It says that the earth was formless and void. There was tohu vavohu, which is um, a reference to a wilderness, but it's also a reference to uh, stormy chaos waters. It's both of those. It's a... Uh, um, oxymoron oxymoronic a type of death and destruction and chaos it's a metaphor for everything that's disorderly and wrong in the world and then you see how god with his creation power turns all of that into something that's life and that's good for humans to be able to work and live with him and so now you fast forward you go throughout the bible there are, there are many places that you see this throughout the bible well um uh, skip over those for now, because y you can look at those in the Old Testament. Um, what's most important is that we look at the first pages of the Bible, Jesus's life ministry, his death, burial, resurrection, and the last pages. So anyways, you go and you look at Jesus and how he walks over the seas. And they look at him and they say that he looks like, most translations say a ghost, but the Greek word for ghost can also be translated spirit. So you see a spirit over the waters. And you know that the only spirit over the waters, the only thing over the waters that has power over the waters to do that is God. But they also identify him as being like a spirit. So you think of a spirit going over, sorry, not the waters, the seas. It's Genesis 1-2. Jesus is being the spirit over the chaos waters. And he's coming to bring them into, he's coming to bring these factors of death, chaos, and destruction. He, he's putting them under his feet and he's coming towards the disciples and he's calling them towards himself to work with him. That's brilliant. 
But even when he calls them to work with him, even when Peter comes to work with him, Peter cannot walk on the sea. He has to walk on the water. Yes, it's the same substance, but not metaphysically speaking. Because when Peter walks on it, Peter is not walking on the symbols of death, chaos, and destruction that Jesus was walking on. It's not because where Jesus was, there was a storm, and where Peter was, there wasn't. It's because Peter does not have that power according to the Bible. It's because the apostles never understood Peter to be God, the Spirit of God that had power over that. The power that he was granted to do that was given by Jesus. And in fact, that whole idea is fulfilled in Jesus' death and resurrection, which is symbolized by baptism or immersion. When we go into the waters... We are dying to ourselves in Christ, just like Christ went into uh, Sheol, Hades, which is literally referred to, it's, it's, it's almost synonymous with the waters. When you look at uh, the Psalms and the poetry of the Hebrew Bible, how they refer to Sheol, they refer to them side by side with these chaos waters. And Jesus goes into those and he comes out having power over them and destroying them. And he does this so that people can live in a resurrected life with him. They can work with him as humans did in the first pages of the Bible. Just like Peter works with Jesus over these forces of destruction. And Jesus calms them for him, makes them easier for him to walk over. When he walks over them, they're just waters and not the sea. And then on the last page of the Bible, there's no sea at all. There's no problem that God has to hold back. There's no sea. In Revelation, it talks about how, look, and there, there, there was no sea at all. There's no sea. So, we just trace that idea. We trace it from the very first page of the Bible, and we trace it to Jesus' life ministry. Then we traced it from Jesus' life ministry to his death, his resurrection. And then we traced it to Revelation. And so... Some of these things you can't fully understand without looking at the language, without looking at the history. And some of these things you can't understand without looking at those. But once you look at those, it adds more. It always does add more. But you always have to understand that these authors are writing intentionally in a way that is bringing about uh, significance and meaning before it is bringing about um, what we today would consider literal historical value. So... I want to look at one more motif to show it can be done for more than just these waters. Let's look at the motif of the woman at the well. Now, obviously, there are larger motifs that are more expansive, right? I said everything can be traced throughout the entire storyline of the Bible, but that doesn't mean every word, every um, article, everything, but for the most part, right? So. You also look at something like the woman at the well. The woman at the well. The first woman that's at the well is um, Isaac's future wife. Abraham goes, sends out his servant. His servant goes to the well. He meets a woman. Instantly, they, they meet up. She ends up proposing or being proposed to, sort of, according to their culture. Anyway, anyways, whatever happens, they end up getting married. Then you look at... Jacob's story of him going to the well. Um, he ends up lying, being lied to, as usual. I mean, that's what his name means. That's what his whole story is about. So his, his, 
the, the motif of the woman at the well is now combined with the motif of him being a big, awful liar, which is pretty awesome. And then after that, you see Moses meet his wife at the well, and he has to fight to draw back waters, and he, he does that, and then he gets a woman at the well, and he instantly marries her. Just like the name Moses means drawn out of the water, it's combining both of those motifs. You continue on sometimes, you see some other women at the well, you get the idea, right? But then you go and you see Saul, Saul the first king of Israel. But before he's king, he's going and he's looking for some donkeys. But he can't find them, he's searching for them, and he goes and he's at this well and he meets some women at a well. And he goes and he asks them if they see the donkeys, and they say no. And then he leaves, and guess what? He doesn't marry any of them. Ding, 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 ding. Some red bells should be going off in your head. Sirens should be blaring. Because what's happening right now is you're figuring out that whatever this Saul guy is, whoever he is, is no bueno. It's not good. He's not marrying this girl at the well. It's not meeting up with who he is. This is a bad bad thing. This is a false alarm. And what do you know? Um, he ends up being a total jerk who's selfish, who's completely considering himself only all the time. Even his own family, uh, he just ends up being an awful person to his entire family, being willing to just uh, throw them aside for his own selfish gains. So when a motif is broken, when something doesn't seem right about a repeated theme, you need to look into it. You have to think about why it's not being repeated. Because many times, the authors of the Bible will set you up to expect a pattern. Circle, triangle, square. Circle, triangle, square. Circle, triangle, square. And so if you see circle, square, triangle, it's not because these writers of the Bible were primitive idiots. It's because they're actually biblical scholarly geniuses that know exactly what they're doing and they're trying to get you to be intellectual enough to understand what they're doing and to pick up on it. But you can't do that if you think that they're idiots or if you think that the Bible is just some lame story that's not really told in any specifically interesting or intellectual manner. So what does that have to do with Jesus? Well, apparently it's a false alarm. It's, it, it should send sirens off in your head if somebody goes to a well and they don't end up marrying the woman that they meet at the well. Well, you see Jesus and he goes to a well in Samaria where he's going to be around a bunch of Jews who have mixed with the Assyrians and uh, Jews don't really do that. And so Jews in Samaria, he's going in Samaria and he's a Jew and he meets this Samaritan woman. She's all alone. She's going to draw water, but they don't end up marrying. They don't end up having romantic interests in each other. Ding, 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 ding. Red sirens should be going off. But you know what's interesting is that she's actually married to five husbands or she has been. And she's now living with someone who isn't her husband. Ding, 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 red sirens. But the thing is, when a lot of these things come to Jesus and the motif is being switched up, 
it's not necessarily saying something wrong. Jesus is often the person, in fact, who breaks these motifs, who these biblical authors are intentionally inserting these motifs into Jesus's life ministry, but are changing it up to see, to show you how Jesus is changing things. And remember, what you have to do is you have to look at the significance of the event. Okay, so Jesus is changing it up. So what? So, this woman who's living with a man who isn't even her husband, who's been with five husbands before, is now being told everything about herself. She's meeting the Messiah, somebody who's transforming her, who's making her want to live as somebody else. Apparently, this world has a whole lot more significance than just having one husband that you have to be faithful to. Not that you can, like or are supposed to go on in whatever type of fornication. But apparently, Jesus is bringing about transformation. Jesus is breaking a cycle of events where you have to be a certain way, where people like Saul end up the way they do. Jesus is breaking that cycle. He's freeing them from it. So, those were just two different examples of a couple of different ways that this works. And I'd encourage you to go and look at other examples. And as you read the Bible, this is what you should be thinking about. This is what should be on your mind the whole time. Because it's what's on the biblical author's mind the whole time. And so, this is what it means to look at something biblically. Tying this all. We see that the Bible is telling one complete story from beginning to end. All things must be understood from the very first pages of the Bible and must be brought to closure in the final pages of the Bible as well as in Jesus' life ministry, which is brought to its climax in his life, death, and resurrection. Or rather, his life is brought to conclusion in his death and resurrection. And if it's not being understood in that way, as the comfortable gospel is where they're just completely skipping over the first three quarters of the gospel the first three quarters of the bible including the first pages of creation which shows god's goodwill and his intent and what he's all about it skips over who god is and his character which is first shown in those pages all that you can tell from the comfortable gospel is that you're either going to go to heaven or hell but you don't even see that God's initial intention was for us to be in heaven in the first place. In heaven on earth. Working with him to fight against these powers of death, chaos, and destruction. But the biblical gospel, sorry, the comfortable gospel defines the term biblical in a way that could actually, actually very dangerous. And actually allows for heresy, it allows for inclusivism, it allows for universalism, Gnosticism, ap- uh, adoptionism, uh, Judaism, uh, Islam, any of those things. Because it's about pulling things out from the Bible and not understanding the Bible holistically. It's a huge problem. And it has to be, every little detail must be fully understood. And we must fully be understanding the gospel to learn and relearn who Jesus is. That's what being biblical is all about. Well, thank you all so much for tuning in to this installment to the Bibleonian podcast on the uncomfortable gospel. 
I hope that you learned a lot about what it means to be biblical and that the truths in this episode are transformative for you, for who you are and how you go about living your life and thinking about what it means to be biblical. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to go and check out all my other episodes and feel free to give it a good review on whatever platform you're on and share it with your friends so they can hear about this content as well. I also have other resources on my website as is linked below and you can go check those out, see all my other uh, opinions as they're being developed and as I'm writing and thinking and living through my life, trying to be transformed by this text and trying to be biblical. Anyways, thank you all so much for listening and I'll catch you next time in Babylonia.